special guest podcast. I'm Gemma and I'm Emily. In today's podcast we're joined by Chrissy from the Hidden Her Story blog and podcast who's kind enough to come and talk to us about one of my favourite topics, women at war. So without further ado, on to the podcast. My name's Chrissy and I run a blog called uh, the Hidden Her Story blog and podcast. Um, I've been doing it for about four years. I started on a sort of blog spot account and basically I, I sort of I kept finding these stories about women who I, I didn't know anything about you know um, and I'd be doing some research for like family history or various other things and I kept discovering all these women in history I've read some books um, there was a couple of really good books that had like little potted biographies of um, interesting women in history so that's how it all started really and I thought um, I wanted to have a go at doing some writing so what way what better way to do it than to write some stories about women that you know weren't really out there at the time so that's how the blog got started and in August this year I decided I wanted to sort of do something that was bigger and better um, and started the podcast Um, and so basically yeah what I do is find interesting stories about intriguing inspiring and some infamous women as well and I've got lots of different interests I like the Victorian era the Edwardian era um, but I do like wartime as well First World War and Second World War. So um, I'm glad that you've invited me on today to talk about women at war. Um, And I've got some interesting ladies uh, to chat to you about. Women at war is definitely uh, one of Emily's favourites. Yes, I I gather that one. But there's so many, like, there's so many different strands to women at at war, isn't there? You know, there's so many different wars and there's, um, you know, there were the women that actually fought and, you know, in the, in the rafts or in the, in the wrens. But then there's also, you know, all those stories about women who fought their own battles on the home front. Obviously, when we were discussing about having a chat about women at war, you mentioned yep. two different women to us that you'd mm-hmm. written posts about. One of the ladies, her name is Felicia Brown. Um, and she actually was the only British woman to die in the Spanish Civil War, which took place um, just before the First World War in the 1930s. And I think I found her story. I follow quite a, a lot of really good like history accounts on Twitter. And there's one that sort of does sort of working class history and tends to be sort of quite left wing. And, and they posted out this picture behind me. And I the story just intrigued me because there was a little sort of you know 140 word little biography about this woman and I just knew nothing about her so I followed the link and I just thought when I was launching the new blog I wanted somebody who you know really had done a a lot in her life but that not a lot of people would actually you know have, have heard of her name so I'll tell you a little bit about Felicia um, there is another lady as well that I'm going to have a chat to you about. And, and, and she's not so much a woman at war, but she was almost a woman who prevented a war. Um, and she's on my blog too. So um, but I'll tell you about Felicia first. Felicia was born at uh, the beginning of the 20th century. She was born in Surrey. Um, and she, she was really lucky because her father was quite progressive. She, she was born into a progressive kind of quite radical thinking political family and she was very talented at art and drawing and her, her father really nurtured that talent and she had a really good education uh, she went to some really top art schools and she um yeah she was you know she was a really really talented artist um before she ever got involved sort of in in, in politics but I think you know that was something that she was always interested in and as far as the Spanish Civil War goes she just sort of happened to be there at the time but I think as, as you learn more about her story you'll, you'll see that you know she was always kind of involved in, in, in politics but from quite a left-wing perspective but basically yeah she, she, she you know she, she ended up going to art school and she was a sculptor and a painter she was quite she was talented in lots of different areas and she won sort of awards and things like that when she was at art school what what sort of started off her whole sort of fight against fascism was the fact that she ended up going to Berlin 
and she studied sculpturing and she was also she did metal work so um, she actually became an apprentice out there in Berlin and she was living sort of with with other artists and at the time she could see how how fascism was beginning to arise within like in Germany so she kind of you know she was there on the spot and and she was talking to people who were anti-fascists in the in the artist community so she she was getting a really good idea of what was going on in Europe far far better than you know a lot of people in England and also as well I think she had a brother who who died in the first world war in 1918 and I think that kind of affected her politics as well so you know there she was she was out in Germany she was learning all these all these art things she was doing all this doing all this create creative stuff but then you know she was actually learning about all the politics as well and and she was even getting in, involved in kind of street fighting that was the first sort of indication that you know she actually really wanted to fight fascism you know properly rather than just sort of from afar um, because the, the people that she was friendly with the other artists sometimes they would end up having an argument with a group of fascists in the street and they would actually end up having fisticuffs and, and Felicia was right in there um, and she was you know she was willing to fight for her political beliefs from uh, you know be before she'd even got involved in, in thinking about you know joining to fight a war. And also she she did a lot of traveling as well. So when she came back from Germany, she um, she she also ended up going out to Russia. And so that's I think that's how she sort of she ended up sort of becoming quite interested in communism. And she went out to Russia and she wanted to see how people could live in a commune. She traveled through places like Czechoslovakia and Hungary, but she could speak four languages. So you know, she could speak German, she could speak English and she could speak, I think, Italian maybe in French so um, you know she, she was well traveled and going through these countries she could see how politics and how fascism was beginning to take over in Europe in the sort of end of the 1920s and, nine, and during the 1930s so you know she, she was really really well informed and then she came back to England in the 1930s and she ended up becoming involved with a, um, an international arts association which was quite left-wing and she went back and she did some more studying. She went to Goldsmiths College and the Central School of Art. And then she ended up uh, you know, joining the Communist Party in then because that was where her political beliefs lie. But she was also one of these people, though she came from sort of quite a, a well-to-do family, she wasn't short of money. She actually ended up like giving all her money away. Once she joined the Communist Party, she gave all her money away to refugees and she ended up sort of working in a soup kitchen. So she was really philanthropical and she wasn't one of these people who spouted her politics and didn't actually put her money where her mouth was. Um, you know, she 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 really did sort of give up all her worldly goods and she she saw herself as one of the people. And then how she ended up being uh, being out in Spain, um, because the civil war hadn't actually started, but she was going on a holiday with a friend of hers who was uh, a left wing photographer called Edith Bone. And the two of them were in driving and they were dri on this driving holiday and they were going to go through France and then end up in Spain. And the idea was that they were going to attend um, the People's Olympiad, which was being held in Barcelona as an alternative to the Berlin Olympics. And this was um, in 1936 so they they had planned to drive through France and drive through Spain and end up at the People's Olympiad and go and watch some sports or you know something that uh, again was a the People's Olympiad was a was a a backlash against the fascism of holding the Olympics in Berlin so you know that was their plan and unfortunately I think it was about a day before the People's Olympiad was due to begin the Spanish Civil War kicked off and basically the two women Felicia and Edith Bone were stuck in Barcelona and they were right in the thick of it as literally the civil war broke out whilst they were there they couldn't they couldn't 
they couldn't go back to England. Um, and I think Felicia was um, realised that, you know, here was her opportunity to actually do even more for uh, the fight against fascism. And she wanted to join, um, she had saw all these partisan uh, anti-fascist battalions were being put together in Spain very quickly. And there were, you know, you could go and join up. And there were women, there were there were quite a few women brigades that there were Spanish, like all Spanish women battalions um, during the Civil War. Uh, but not so much at the front line uh, but Felicia wanted to be right in there and she wanted you know she wanted to join a, a good brigade and she wanted to go out on missions and you know she really wanted to do her bit and she had to really persuade a lot of the men you know that she, that she was that she was able to do this um, and she actually did you know she she went around and she actually heard about this mission to blow up a train and so she decided she was going to go and see the commandant and just insist that you know he took her along and he was really reluctant to do that but she just you know she persevered and she stood there and she said I can fight as well as any man and she she refused to back down and she refused to go until he let her join Um, and that's how she kind of became got involved really so she was on this mission and basically she was with a group of people Spanish fighters and they ended up having to go out to blow up this train and without going into too much detail they ended up they they did their mission they blew up the train tracks but on the way back they saw an airplane that had crashed with a dead pilot in it and thought it was a very strange scene and then all of a sudden over the top of the ridge they saw about 40 enemy soldiers so this small group suddenly overcome and basically the leader of the group told them all to sort of run into the forest and whilst they were trying to run away from the fascists one of the people in the in the group an Italian man got shot um, and he was injured and they had to leave him and Felicia couldn't leave him something in her wanted to help him she turned around and she went back he was injured in the foot um, and as she went to try and sort of comfort his body and see if he was okay she was shot in the chest um, and in the back and she was killed and that was on her first mission and she was the one and only English woman to ever die in the Spanish Civil War but the sad thing was that they had to leave her body there Um, they couldn't actually go back and retrieve her body because it was too dangerous so the rest of the troop went back to their headquarters and when they got back there they actually found in her possessions because she was an artist while she'd been with these people she sketched them when they'd been out on reconnaissance missions you know she'd taken her sketch pad and so there were all these wonderful drawings that she'd done uh, which almost like a war artist she was like an unofficial war artist so these were sent back to London and they came into the hands of um, a gentleman who published a a left-wing communist newspaper and he suggested that these wonderful drawings showing real life in the Spanish Civil War by a woman um, should be sent to the uh, left-wing art association, the International Artists Association that she belonged to, and that they should be auctioned and sold to raise money for funds to fight the war. And that's what happened. And that is basically Felicia's story. I mean, she, she had one mission and she died in that first mission, but her commitment to fighting fascism was you know more than 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 most people um and and she you know she really put her money where her mouth was and it's just for me it's just a shame because she there was she was such a brilliant artist um and I think you know she gave her life to a cause that she really really believed in and um on the blog post there is a a obituary that was written about her and one of the lines uh, if you, you can read the whole thing but I think the the qualities that Felicia had as a as a woman at war are kind of summed up by by this quote and it said she had the most of the best human characteristics but she conceived her own variety more as a source of opposition than enjoyment she was without guile duplicity or vanity she was painfully truthful and honest immensely kind and generous completely humane loving any aspect of livingness and and as capable of enormous humor as she was deeply serious she was gifted at every craft she tried she was a witty letter writer and an amusing cartoonist and a vital and interesting companion and socially much too gracious to belong credibly to the 20th century and I think those words when you hear them 
I think sum up what a what an amazing woman she was. She was a talented artist. She had held very deep political beliefs, which she believed in, and she was willing to die and go to war in a different country to fight for her political beliefs. And that's why that's why I think Felicia is just such a an interesting woman at war to talk about because. Um, probably not many people will have heard of that story so if you've enjoyed listening to me telling you that story then do go and have a read of the blog you can actually see some of her paintings are online at the Tate Gallery so there's a link on the blog and you can actually go and have a look at some of her paintings and find out more about her from the links on there because that's what I do on my blog I, I like to give you the story and then kind of say well here's some extra reading and if you're interested you know you can go and find out more about her do you know what happened to her friend she was travelling with? Ah, now, that's a question, actually, um, because I have so many names of ladies that I want to research, and Edith Bone, again, I thought, I ought, this is how these stories, I, I sort of gather these stories, and they just kind of, they grow and grow and grow, because in one woman's story, I will inevitably find two or three other women that I think, ah, they're interesting. So they get added to a list, and I've now got, like, sort of six A4 notebooks just completely filled with like columns and columns of names so Edith is actually on my list I think Edith did end up staying in Spain but don't quote me on this but and she did actually end up getting involved with with some of the um in Spanish politics or with the um during the civil war so I think Edith actually did stay out there but I'm going to do some more research on her so in another future blog post you will be able to find out what happened to Edith but um she yeah she she was very much like Felicia I think she, she was very left-wing and she believed in her political causes and I know she did get involved um, but to what extent and what she actually did I haven't found that out yet so uh, you'll just have to stay tuned and find out when I do. Definitely. I was going to say I don't really know much about the Spanish Civil War. But I, I don't know that much either um, but it, what I do know is that um, I, I, I don't really know about the causes and what but it, it was the rise of fascism in Spain and fascists took over and sort of overthrew the government. It was basically mirroring what was going on in Germany and what was going on in Italy at the time so there was this general rise of fascism and we had it in England as well with Sir Oswald Mosley and the Black Shirt so it was happening all over Europe really this rise of, of fascism and right-wing politics but the, th the thing with the Spanish Civil War is I think what most people kind of how most people would have heard of it is that a lot of like Americans and English men went to fight against fascism so and I think the reason that probably people know this is that a lot of them were, were authors or writers Ernest Hemingway was an American who you know went out and fought in the Spanish Civil War and, and wrote about it and George Orwell, I think, as well. So, you know, I, I, I can't really tell you too many details. The Spanish Civil War isn't isn't my period or my war in history, but it, it, it was kind of like everybody could see what, what was happening in the Spanish Civil War and it, it was kind of almost like a red flag to what was going to happen in World War II if people didn't stop this rise of fascism you know it was it was like the uh, the war before before world war ii that kind of intelligent people were saying this is happening in spain now and and then it went on you know to happen in germany and in in the rest of europe and as I say, women did take part. There were Spanish um, battalions, but they didn't so much fight on the, in the front line. They were sort of further back. There were a lot of women who were fighting for their cause in Spain. And there were women who came from other places in Europe to fight as well. Um, but as I say, Felicia was the only English woman to die. There may have been a couple of other English women, but again, because history and women can be erased out of these things, you know, sometimes those records don't always survive. So that, that's another reason why, you know, these stories sometimes don't get told. And sometimes women went in disguise as well, as, as, as we know in war. It wasn't always easy to be a woman fighting in war. I'm so glad you've written about her and you've come and talked to us about her today because she's fascinating and it's such a shame that her name isn't mm. more well known. It really um, is. And not, I mean, not just for the fact that she died in a war, but as an artist, um, you know, that the art, when you have a look at her art, it was very much of its time. She was quite modernist um, and she has a wonderful style as an artist. Um, and so she should be known for that as well as what she did by going to fight in a war. Uh, but that's the whole point. I think um, 
that you know by writing these stories in the blog and then talking about them on other people's podcasts then you know hopefully it spreads the word and people will get to know her name eventually and maybe there will be something you know done to remember her in a, in a special way so would you like to learn about my other lady <laughs> definitely T- tell us who okay. else is on your list i'm gonna so this lady there are a few things about her if you put her name in on youtube but again she was a, a lady that really really interested me and her story say so it's not so much about a woman fighting in a war if she'd have done what she wanted to do, which was assassinate Mussolini, who was the dictator in charge of Italy uh, in the 1930s and 20s, um, if she had done that, if she had managed to do what she wanted to do, then perhaps the Second World War may not have happened or it may have happened differently. And, you know, so Violet, as her name is, Violet Gibson, um, she has a really, really interesting story. Violet as you can see in the picture there, you wouldn't believe it, but she was actually born into quite a a well-to-do family. And her father was a a baron, I think. And she was brought up in in Ireland and she was brought up in a a big house. She had governesses, she had uh, servants, and um, she came from a very well-to-do background. But unfortunately, she was really sickly when she was young. She had scarlet fever when she was five. She had peritonitis at the age of 14, pleurisy at the age of 16, and rubella, German measles, at the age of 20. So if you can imagine, most of her childhood would have been spent in bed. She was sickly, she was an invalid, but she seems to me a person who had lots of energy and and being ill all the time would have made her very frustrated, if you can imagine. You know, she wouldn't have been allowed out to take fresh air or walks or exercise she would have spent a lot of time in her room and you know for a young girl and and she was very intelligent girl um you know I I think this would have led to a lot of frustration like in her youth and and as a teenager and and I think you know there was a lot of pent-up energy in Violet from her childhood of being and 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 sickness was was always a theme that kind of as we'll see when I uh, explain her story sickness is a theme that kind of runs through her life so there she is she's 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 living a very very privileged life in Ireland and after she sort of uh, she gets over all these childhood illnesses and, and there is a sort of thing that you know she, she had a, a bit of a temper on her you know she could be quite fiery and she could lose her temper and again I think that comes down to you know the fact that she was very very frustrated and in her 20s she sort of became interested in religion and she and she sort of tried on a few different religions as you do if you're sort of not sure and she did her homework you know she 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 looked into all these different religions and at one time she was into a religion called theosophy um and and theosophy basically um had a main belief that all diverse human forms and non-human so animal plants nature everything is indivisibly one so it and the idea of Theosophy was to build this a universal brotherhood without any discrimination. So almost like a like a perfect world where we're all in tune, animals, nature, humans, and you know everybody gets on with one another. It was very sort of you know utopian. But that that she tried this religion on for a little bit, and then maybe thought now you know I'm I'm not I'm not too sure about this. And eventually she actually turned to Catholicism, which was incredibly difficult or not difficult. For, for a woman who had been brought up as an anglicised Irish woman in a aristocratic sort of family, um, to turn to Catholicism was to reject everything that like that stood for, the, the, the family status um, and the Church of England. And it was it, it, that sort of it did really upset her family. Violet was one of those people that she did what she wanted to do. She was quite headstrong. And, you know, and as I said, she was very intelligent, so she wouldn't, you know, turn to Catholicism without having read a lot about it first and done her research. You know, she wasn't just sort of playing around with religion. She, she needed something to believe in and she found it in Catholicism. Um, but she also had like 
as I say, in her life, there was a lot of sickness and death. Um, again, I think she lost a brother in the First World War, and that affected her mental health. You know, she was grieving a lot. And also, like I say, after she converted to Catholicism, she had like issues with her father and her parents. They weren't very happy about it. And, you know, so she was falling out with her, with her family. Um, but then when she was 21, she actually came into her allowance from her father and that allowed her to go off traveling. Um, and she traveled in Europe and she went to Italy. I think she went to France. She, she did a lot of traveling, learning different languages. She was getting involved in politics again and traveling out in Europe. She could see in the time that it was happening, you know, this rise of fascism. And she went to Germany too and Switzerland. But then these deaths kept happening in her family. Um, and it's it just sort of one after the other, the people that were very close to her died. And she just sort of had this overwhelming grief all the time. And it just seemed, this death and illness just seemed to sort of stalk her through throughout her younger life. And so she decided that she was going to move away from Dublin, where she, where she lived with the parents. And she was going to go to, to London. She'd been to London before, she'd attended, um, she'd been presented at court, she was a debutante, so, you know, she was, she, she had been in, in, in that sort of um, very uh, elite society, and so she decided to go to London, and then she had a little bit of an adventure, and really, when you learn about the rest of Violet's life, I think this is probably the, the time she was at her most happiest, um, because she met a, a gentleman, and he was an artist, so she kind of got sucked into this slightly bohemian way of life he lived in Chelsea um, and by this time you know she, she was late 20s so she wasn't young you know she hadn't been married off um, and in in terms of at that time in that period of history she she was a spinster um, so to meet a man at that age and then they fell madly in love and they had this passionate affair he was probably the one and only man she ever loved in her life. But unfortunately, like a lot of people in Violet's life, he died. They got engaged. Um, and before they could get married, they'd been engaged for about a year and he died. And I don't know what of it. There's not a lot of information about this particular man. We don't even know what his name was, who he was. But he died and Violet became really grief stricken again and she she was feeling very very ill she went to see doctors and they sort of all, all they could tell her was that she either had a bad case of flu or she had a nervous disorder called hysteria and really she was you know she was grieving and she was going through some serious sort of mental health problems depression and she could never get any answers for this um, and then in 1913 her father died um, and again, she coped with this grief by going off to Paris for a while. And again, while she was out in Paris, she began to be involved with some pacifist organisations. And then illness hit poor Violet again, and she contracted Paget's disease, which is a kind of cancer. She ended up having a mastectomy, which left a, a nine inch scar across her chest. Again, all this, all of this illness and death, and it just seemed to sort of follow her wherever she went. Um, but she, you know, and she'd, she'd survived from cancer. So she ended up back in, back in England. And again, she got sick. She had more, another case of peritonitis and appendicitis. She had more surgery. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't as successful as it could have been. And she ended up having sort of pains in her stomach pretty much for the rest of her life. So just try and imagine this poor woman who has, you know, lost several family members close to her. She's become really religious in the Catholic religion. She's been dogged by illness and pain and suffering all her life. And she's, um, you know, she, she, she doesn't believe in, in war. She's a pacifist. She's got her own sort of political beliefs, uh, which are very much tied up with her religion as well. Um, and, and she's in pain all the time. And then she sort of ends up going, following sort of the cult sort of religion. And she discovers this chap called John O'Fallon Pope. And she starts reading his writings. And she becomes, I think, really obsessed with the idea that if you, if you kill somebody and it's doing good for the world, then you become a martyr. And I think by this time, Violet is, she's having very extreme thoughts about how to 
be a pure person and how to be a good person. And she feels that the only way she can achieve this is by committing some some act of martyrdom to cleanse her soul. She be, she she just becomes completely obsessed with this thought. Um, she's writing notebooks where she's saying things like the degree of holiness depends on the mortification and the word mortification, which means death, is underlined. After she sort of become very obsessed with this idea of becoming a martyr, there was another death in the family. And um, this was in 1922. And it was her brother, Victor. And she was very, very close to him. She was quite close to a few of her brothers, um, but particularly to Victor. And I think it was quite a sudden, sudden death. So, uh, you know, again, she'd had all this death and illness in her life. And then her beloved brother dies suddenly. And it's just too much for, for Violet to bear. She's already, you know, her mind is already slightly fractured. She's obsessed with this martyrdom idea and losing a brother just completely breaks her. And so she actually ends up going to a psychiatric hospital for two years. And when she's finally better and she gets over her grief, she decides, well, her family decide that she she wants to go and convalesce. So she goes to Rome and she takes a nurse with her and she lives out in Rome. The, the area that Violet is living in at this time with this nurse is um, sort of quite a, a working class area. There's a, quite a lot of crime um, in this particular area of, of, of Rome um, and she's living here in a small apartment I guess with her with her nurse but uh, even one of her friends before she even went to, to Rome she had a friend that she, she Violet used to write to and this friend was convinced that somehow Violet's trip to Rome wasn't just about convalescing this idea about martyrdom you know she'd obviously had a couple of years to think about all this while she was recovering in the hospital and she was determined to go out and do something and martyr herself and her friend thought that possibly she could be going to kill the Pope or you know she had this idea and obviously from letters that Violet had written that you know her being out in Rome wasn't just for a convalescent holiday um, but she wasn't quite sure what Violet's plans were anyway so there's Violet she's living in this in this sort of area where she manages to get hold of a gun and she actually tries to commit suicide uh, by shooting herself. But unfortunately, Violet is, um, she doesn't succeed, or fortunately, she doesn't succeed. She does have quite a bad injury, but um, she survives that. That was in February. The bullet missed her heart. She, God must have been looking down on her that day because the bullet missed her heart and actually ricocheted off her um, her rib cage. She told her her maid there and then that the reason she'd done it was because she wanted to die for God. And unfortunately, guess what happens next in poor Violet's life? She's recovering from attempted suicide on herself, and her mother dies. So there she is, hit with another bout of grief. And this is in March 1926. And Mussolini at this time is in, he's he's come to power in Italy. And he's very, very popular in 1926. Um, and he's pretty much adored by not just the Italians. At that time, in 1926, the British government were, had given him, um, had awarded him a, 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 like a medal. For, uh, and he's, the Italian troops were actually fighting the Russians. So they were keeping communists, uh, the communists at bay. And the British and the Italian government were very, were very close. At, at the time, Mussolini wasn't was was adored he wasn't the dictator that he became. He was very much adored at the time by the Italian public. And he was just starting out in his political career. So, and there we've got Violet, you know, she's had a suicide attempt, then her mum dies and she's determined she's got this gun. It's in April. So it's not long after her mother died. She just goes out one morning. She leaves. She, she's staying in a in like a um, in a convent, sorry, not an apartment. So she she leaves the convent and she's dressed all in black. By that time, she's in her fifties, but she looks a lot older. Um, she's had a hard life, really, for somebody from you know a, a well-to-do background. She's in the crowd and Mussolini's there, and he's being you know all the, the crowd are shouting Il Duce, Il Duce, and he's absorbing all of this adoration from the crowd. And this little Irish woman 
has the gun in her pocket. She was determined she was going to do it that day because she had a rock in her other pocket. She knew where he was going to be. She tracked all his movements um, and she was determined she had a rock in her pocket just in case he was in a car and she had to like smash the windscreen to shoot him. She was determined that she was going to kill him that day. As he came towards about a couple of foot away from her, she pulled out the gun. She went to shoot him. And the first time, as she shot the bullet, she aimed at, at him and he moved back slightly. So the bullet literally just skimmed across his nose, causing a bit of a, an injury, but didn't hit him square in the, in, the, in the head as she had intended. And at that point, you can imagine this crowd suddenly just, there's a silence because their beloved leader has, you know, somebody has shot at him and Violet is waiting and she fires the gun again and she, but it, it it jams and I think Violet has to be well either one of the most luckiest you know or unluckiest people with guns because she couldn't manage to shoot herself and she didn't manage to shoot Mussolini and at that point I think when the gun jammed I tried to imagine you know how she would feel and there's this you know this baying crowd and their beloved leader is you know injured and she was waiting for them to literally descend on her and tear her to pieces and that was going to be her martyrdom but unfortunately the crowd did round on her and they did kind of they did they did attack her um, but the police managed to come and drag her away and she was basically semi-conscious. I think they dragged her into police station and she was given some brandy, I think, to revive her. And she was taken to prison. And then there was this long, drawn-out time uh, where she was questioned. They, the, the, the Italian government basically thought that she was working as a spy and that she had organised this assassination attempt with other people. Um, she insisted that it had been just her. I suppose they couldn't believe it really when they looked at this sort of frail lady behind me. I, I suppose that the Italians must have found it very difficult to, um, you know, to think that this woman was just was she just a crazy English lady, Irish lady on her, you know, working on her own, or was there this big conspiracy to try and assassinate Mussolini? She was questioned for days and days, and when you there were a lot of reports as well, and she went through some really degrading examinations physical examinations uh psych psychiatric examinations and it's really hard to tell they said that you know when she was talking to the guards she was lucid and and she insisted all along that you know, she had done this for god um and she was working alone she was told that if she pleaded insanity that she may get off with a prison sentence rather than she could have been you know she could have been hung um so she was advised to plead insanity and one of the things that the Italians did was because she was a woman of a certain age and she'd never had any children they had to prove that there was some link to this whole idea of hysteria and madness being connected to the womb and that women who didn't naturally want children were somehow not not natural normal women um so yeah she you know she had to she had to be stripped naked they they they, they prodded and poked her and it must have been an awful humiliating um and, and very stressful time for this poor woman who you know was quite fragile in her mind anyway but but was she you know that that is the whole question that's what I like about Violet's story is you know you can look at her in one sense of, of being with just this crazy woman who had this crazy idea and went tried to go through with it or was she a very highly intelligent woman who had such strong beliefs and really could see what Mussolini and fascism was doing and you know was she that far ahead of her time that she could see that he was going to turn into this evil monster and you know at the end of the day I think when you look at her story, she tried to kill two people and failed twice herself and Mussolini. He killed millions of people. You know, who was the monster? You know, it's a, it's a very, very interesting story. But even more interesting was what happened to her afterwards, uh, because she was in prison in Italy and her family were very worried about her. They really didn't think she was going. They were going to see her again. And they tried to help her. And the, the government intervened. And I think basically what happened was a, a deal was brokered basically between the British government and the Italians. And the Italians said, well, you can take her back to England, but, you know, lock her up for the rest of her life. Don't ever let her out. 
And I think the British were thinking, you know, this woman could be dangerous and we don't actually want her getting out. So it was a she was basically silenced and she was she was put on a train. She was sent back to England. She was accompanied by her sister, I think. She could have escaped off the train had she realised. I'm not really sure whether she realised what was going to happen to her when she got back to England. She sort of agreed to everything. But whether she actually realised that she was going to be imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital for the rest of her days, I'm not sure. Maybe she just accepted that. Um, but as it was, she was taken, I think it was in Nottinghamshire, she was she was basically taken on the train. Um, she got to London, I think about midnight, she was taken then to Nottingham. And she was, again, stripped, taken, well, her clothes were taken away from her, she was washed. Uh, so that, you know, it was a very long journey from Italy to London. By the time she got to the hospital, must have been incredibly late. And then she had another journey. And she eventually ended up in in, in the psychiatric hospital in Nottingham and she was there for the rest of her life and it's it's quite sad really um, because I think that uh, even as I said when Mussolini eventually um, during the second world war towards the end of the second world war he ended up being lynched by partisans and he met a very very grisly death and there is part of me that kind of thinks had Violet had known about that at the time she probably would have thought well you know there is some karma in the world when the Germans and the Italians the Italians had already swapped sides by then at the end of the war but when they realized that the game was up and that the allies were there and that they basically went on the run and they tried to escape so there was Mussolini and his mistress and quite a few friends and they were basically trying to escape from Italy over to the Spanish border and there were some Italian partisans who were very angry about all of the bad things that Mussolini had done to their country and to their people and instead of capturing them when they discovered them as prisoners of war which they should have done under the Geneva Convention these partisans rounded Mussolini his mistress and his gang and basically shot them all and then after that they they the partisans put the bodies of Mussolini and all his cronies and his mistress into a truck drove it into uh, I can't remember which city it was I think it's Milan and basically they strung the bodies up in the street and um, the bodies were spat upon they were abused they were ridiculed and and they were left hanging like carcasses of meat for quite some time even when you know the war was over and Mussolini had died there was Violet still in this mental hospital Um, and by then I think she had been there for, for such a long time that she had become institutionalized so even if she had been released she wasn't really in a fit mental state to be able to look after herself in in the outside world she used to end up feeding the birds out in the garden and uh, in solitude and she would often threaten other inmates and so they they really thought that even you know even if even if they did let her out she wouldn't have been able to really cope on her own and it's such a, a sad decline um, and eventually her health just deteriorated and eventually you know, she died in, in this hospital. The, her story really wasn't very well known, but out in Ireland um, a few years back, there was a couple of uh, journalists who sort of found this story and uh, one of them did a radio documentary about Violet and, and they actually went back to Ireland and to her the house where she grew up in and there was um there was like a petition to have a blue plaque put there to recognize her in some way because there was this question about was she just you know was she a mad woman or was she actually doing something for a political reason and could she have prevented the second world war or changed events um and i think it was really important for um, people in her her family and her, her her relatives who are still alive today that she was recognised as somebody who you know wasn't it wasn't an act of madness she was she was fighting an act of political war and she needed to be recognised as an activist rather than just this mad woman who had been silenced so I think you know I love Violet's story it's very very sad but unfortunately 
madness and putting women in, in into psychiatric hospitals to keep them quiet is something that's happened in history quite a lot. If we want to talk of, uh, about a couple of other women, very, very quickly, women of war that are on my other blog, it also interests me that, I mean, there's a, there was there's a story about a lady in the First World War called Dorothy Lawrence, who was a journalist, and she actually ended up going out to the Somme. Um, and she she dressed as a man and she, she was refused, you know, the, the, the newspaper wouldn't let her go out there and report. Um, but she managed to sort of get a, a ticket and go out in the pretense that she was going to be a nurse. And then when she got to France, she ended up meeting some soldiers and basically they sort of cobbled together a uniform for her. And she spent, um, I think, about three, four, five weeks actually in the tunnels, in, in the trenches out in France and... And she, you know, she saw things firsthand. Um, and then when she sort of ended up getting back to London and trying to tell her story, basically the government were really horrified that this woman had managed to do this. They didn't want her story to get out. So she was another woman of war who basically, you know, really had the guts to go out there and wanted to, you know, report from the as a, as a as a war reporter. And when she got back to England, she was she was kind of really gagged and shut up. Um, and eventually there was, there was a few other things that happened in her life, but eventually she ended up also in a psychiatric hospital and it was a very similar story. So I think, you know, sometimes these women who risks, risk a lot, you know, risk their lives to go and either report or fight in a war, uh, you know, sometimes their stories, again, don't get told because when they come back you know there's a reason for not allowing these stories to get out there and I think that's that's a really sort of you know it's something that I've come across especially with a lot of the women on like for SOE and the secret agents you, you don't often get to hear a lot of their stories because they you know some people never spoke about them or you know these documents were classified and so you know we, we, we don't they, the stories don't get out there um there, there's a there's a woman on my other blog as well called Phyllis Latour Doyle and she was an SOE agent and basically nobody really knew what she did she didn't tell her family she went out um, to France she was a radio operator she did all these amazing things and you know didn't get caught uh, but came back won all these medals put them away and then after the war just went on to have like a completely different life and it was only like years and years later that her grandchildren I think found her medals and she told them what she did so so, you know, there, there's lots of stories like that. And there's also people like Joan Clark, um, who's on my other blog as well. She didn't actually go and fight in a war, but Joan Clark was there at Bletchley Park with uh, Alan Turing, breaking the Enigma code. I think if people have seen the film The Imitation Game, she was played by uh, Kira Knightley in that film. She played just as important, an important role as a woman in that key group of men um and yet you know Alan Turing gets he's the big name and rightly so because he was leading it but the name of Joan Clark she did she was a highly intelligent woman who went she was one of the first women to actually go to I think it's Cambridge University uh though she couldn't get a degree at the time yet her name is not so well known as Alan Turing so again women like that who play a very very important role in war as she did breaking those codes but yeah you know their names are not so well known as the as the heroes <laughs> there's another one as well uh Christabel Porter who was the model who posed for the Jane cartoons again the Jane cartoon was a cartoon that you know it was a sexy lady but she boosted the morale of so many soldiers during the second world war and that whole cart strip cartoon you know was something that the soldiers away from their homes and their wives and their girlfriends they got some pleasure out of it and so I wrote a blog about her because although she didn't fight a war what she did to sort of keep the troops morale up was like amazing really and she continued doing that right up until she was like 90 years old she still had fans many many years later that remembered that she had modeled for those pictures and she was the face of Jane so there's there's lots of different women that I love to talk about and 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 last but not least those women on the home front have either of you do you have any like have you done family history have you got anybody that fought in the war or any any connections to the first or second world war yourselves in your own family history both my great-grandfathers on my dad's side fought in the war 
one of them repaired the runways when they were bombed for the right. RAF planes to take off, and yeah. the other was in the catering corps. Right. The and, um, soldiers work on their bellies, so catering corps is, you know, the key of any, any, any army. They, they need good guys who can fill those potatoes and make good it, food out exactly. of them. Exactly. Um, um, and my, my great-grandmother's one worked in medicine and one uh, worked in a muni munitions factory. Very, very useful. Very, very useful work. I, I think that's um, a lot of women did that back in, in, in World War One, And I think what, what I, when I look at the home front for me, it, you know, it's just as important because it was such a key time for women. You know, they were, they were taking on men's jobs. They, for some women, it gave them enormous freedom because they'd never had that opportunity before. So in a way, if you want to sort of look at a, a positive side of women at war, the fact that that they had that opportunity to go into the factories to learn skills to go out to work and to and actually have some financial freedom which perhaps they'd never had before when they were just at home looking after the house and the kids and I think it's you know it's such an important time what women did during the first world war led to them getting the vote when the war was over and in the second world war it you know it, it was exactly the same thing it kind of almost led to the the, the rebirth of like you know the new feminism it took about you know it took a while to sort of come through but if you can imagine when women had seen that freedom again in 1940s and you know when in the 1950s and 60s that's when things in the 20th century changed a lot more for women and then in the 70s we had the, the feminism but it kind of goes back to that 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 freedom that women had during the war to be able to to go and you know fight for their for their country but also to go out to work and to do things which you know perhaps they hadn't done before so I think it's really you know the home front is really important as well and in my family I have a blog post on my blog at the moment about my great-grandmother um, and she was a war widow the story of my great-granddad who fought in the uh, in Salonika out in Greece, which is very very little. Not not a lot is really known or talked about that side of the First World War. But a lot of soldiers were sent out to Salonika to fight in the Balkans um, and in Greece. And uh, my great granddad was one of those. And his wife was left at home with two young daughters. Had the First World War not happened, they would have had a really nice kind of middle-class lifestyle they were sort of upwardly mobile during Edwardian times and then my great-granddad he was a he was a clock and watch maker um so he joined the Royal Engineers because he was very good at like fiddly things and you know uh his his training as a clock maker made him a good engineer um and as I say he got sent out to Greece and I think a lot of people think that you know the war out in the Balkans wasn't as bad as for the men who were out fighting in France and it's actually if I tell you that more men died of malaria in the first world war than died of bullets then that will tell you what the biggest problem was out in Greece and it was malaria and illness and sickness because of the heat and the fact that they were building you know they had these shell holes and they, they were digging in and digging in trenches as well in, in, in Salonika um, and there, there was lots of you know stagnant pools of water so it attracted more mosquitoes they bred more and basically the army didn't have like quinine which was the main thing to treat malaria the army couldn't afford to supply all the soldiers with quinine plus it had really nasty side effects as well so sometimes they didn't want to give the soldiers the quinine because actually they'd still have to spend a week in hospital acclimatizing to the quinine there wasn't enough nets and things to go around so soldiers would sort of make their own potions like out of like citronella to put on their faces and stuff but a lot of men caught malaria and, and unfortunately my great-granddad was one of those men and it happened to him right at the end of the war and I think this is the most poignant sort of thing when I discovered this in my own family history is that I kind of imagine my grandmother being at home and hearing the news that the armistice had been signed in November 1918. And she must have been thinking, she probably had a letter from him saying he was in hospital, he'd, he'd got caught a bad case of malaria. And I always think, well, you know, she must have been relieved that he wasn't fighting anymore. And she must have thought he was safe in a hospital. And she must have thought, well, you know, he'll be coming home soon when once she heard that the war was over. And he died, it was 18 days, I think, after the armistice. So then she would have got that telegram telling her that 
he, he he died and during that time like while while he'd been away fighting she'd had to leave her nice house in Kingston upon Thames and moved to Tottenham in London which wasn't quite as nice area but that was so she could be with her mother and they took in washing and laundry and things like that to make ends meet and, and also one of the saddest things was that my, my great-grandfather did get some home leave must have been around about 1915 probably before he went out to Salonica and so he spent some time at home and his son was conceived during that time and my grandmother gave birth to my great uncle uh, in 1916 and I'm not sure if my great granddad actually came, came back on leave to see him but my great uncle grew up without ever knowing his dad and I think the saddest thing for me and about the women at war is that the fact that my grandmother lost her dad and my great grandmother lost her husband and my great aunt lost her dad as well um, and it changed those women's lives. My great, great grandmother ended up, uh, she never married again. Uh, he was the love of her life. But then also, I think, you know, for my grandmother, my grandmother would have had a very different life. She probably would have ended up, she might have ended up being a writer. She was really, she was really good at writing poetry and stories and she was very talented. And she probably would have stayed on at the school had her father come back from the war as it was. She had to leave school at 14. She ended up going into service as a maid in a boarding school, which she hated. But all of their lives would have been very different had he come back alive. And I think for a lot of women, adapting to that change after war, for some women, like I said, it gave them the freedom. It gave them the idea that you know, they could actually get work and have jobs and be financially independent so for some women the war was actually very beneficial but for a lot of women not having their husbands their sons their brothers coming back having to be both parents during the war bring up children on their own or be single parents afterwards and then obviously after the war there was the depression so you know I think those women's lives those those widows who were left behind and there were thousands thousands and thousands of women who were left widowed after the war we, we should remember those those women as well so I think the home front to me is just as interesting in terms of women at war as those women that went out on the battlefields and and their bit there's also a really good book out at the moment that I'm gonna plug and it's not mine but if you love stories about women at war there's uh, it's on my wish list and I'm actually gonna buy it next week and it's called Army Girls by Tess Dunlop uh, where she interviews the last surviving veterans of World War II and these were women that fought in the Wrens and these women are in their 90s and then their 100s and Tess Tessa Dunlop has spent a lot of time becoming friends with these women and getting their stories. And it's so important because those women, God bless their hearts, won't be here in a few years time. And it's so important that historians get this oral history from the women that were actually out there and that these women are remembered. Um, and so it's a lovely book. And so anybody out there who enjoys women at war, um, come and see the blog posts on my blog and my old blog. I think it's interesting that whenever you look at women that have gone to war and then all of a sudden they're very quickly silenced the very first yeah. thing that they go for is to call them insane because they've stepped out of a role that they should be in that, that's exactly it and and it's you know and it happens to women the, the whole idea of the link with um hysteria and it being to do with the womb and to do with your femininity it's something that the patriarchy has pinned on women for hundreds and hundreds of years and locking women up in a uh, and saying that they're insane it's you know this gaslighting has been happening in history for, for centuries so it's no surprise that it happens to people like Violet and people like um, Daphne Lawrence you know it's mm -hmm. it's one of these sad things but it's just good that those stories are out there and that that insanity thing is being questioned by a lot of people now it's definitely interesting because even mm. if she hadn't had everything behind her and had been you know she went through being institutionalized once before everything happened mm -hmm. the government yeah. would have wanted her declared insane to stop Ab any kind absolutely of when, when you start to realize that the british government actually really colluded with the italians because they didn't they they didn't want her um, they, did, they didn't want any, anything that Violet had done or said. They wanted to bury this story. And they're just, you know, the British government at the time were, were just as guilty for locking 
violet away uh, you know and not actually helping her and it and it it it, it, it is it's really really sad because she wasn't a really she was a really intelligent woman um and if you on my blog as well there is that there's somebody there's a lady who's written a one woman play about her too and um, there's sort of short excerpts um on a video on youtube which is on the blog post and that does really show you know violet being a very intelligent woman and you see this slow descent to her eventually you know hours before she dies and it's um i think it's a very interesting way of telling the story uh, through a one woman play and there's no doubt that Violet had very strong, um, you know, and she was obsessed by things. But whether she was criminally insane and real, you know, didn't realise what she was doing, I think she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew Mussolini was a huge threat. And uh, like I say, you know, I think had she shot him, had she killed him on that day, there would have been statues to her everywhere. But then, you know, it's like, it's like time travel, isn't it? Like with Doctor Who, if you go back and you change something in history, then, you know, would, would the say if Mussolini hadn't been around, would things have still happened the same? You know, we, we don't know. But it's just, yeah, it's one of those really interesting little moments that you wish you could wonder, you know, what would have happened had she, had she actually done it? And would she have been celebrated as a, you know, a massive political activist who you know stopped a, a mad dictator just want to thank you both because this is my first ever guest spot normally I'm on the other side asking the questions but thank you so much sagas of she for letting me on your I've followed your blog post for quite some time I think so it's really really nice to actually like now have a connection with you mm -hmm. and to have done this and I really you know I really thank you for inviting me on here but if people have enjoyed me chatting away <laughs> about my lovely ladies do come and find me on uh, hiddenherstory.com that's the new site and there are links to my old blog on the blogspot account you can click on those and there are more stories there and we'll be building it up and adding lots more things so um if you haven't visited already hiddenherstory.com and thank you sagas of she for being such lovely host <laughs> and uh, for letting me just talk about my favorite subject which is women you've never heard of <laughs> 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 but <I> have now <laughs> definitely we very much enjoyed talking to Chrissy, and all of her information will be in the description box below so if you're not already go follow her on social media and check out her blog and podcast <laughs>